Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Some things they just don't mix. Some things they just don't go together, but there are other things that they go together great. Like, you know, bacon and eggs, sausage, pancakes, chocolate, peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly, rainy days, good books, sunshine, the beach. Some things, they just go together great, like Byron and Ashley. We go together great because, well, I love her and she puts up with me. And so that's a match made in heaven because some things, they go together great. But there are other things that just don't mix. And I wanted to figure out this week, what are some things that just don't mix? And so I got on Facebook and I asked, what are some things that just don't mix? And I got a lot of really great responses because you always get good responses whenever you ask Facebook any questions. So let me share with you some responses that I got um, via Facebook about things that just don't mix. The first was oil and water, right? Just doesn't mix. Fire and ice, yeah, they don't go together because some things don't mix. How about this one? Orange juice and toothpaste, right? If you want to ruin your day, there's no better way to hate yourself than to, you know, orange juice and toothpaste because they don't go together. Okay, how about this one? It is Father's Day, so this one's for all the dad. Socks and sandals, okay? Just don't go together. All the guys are like, hey, really? Seriously? And all the ladies are like, thank you. We've been trying to tell them for years. Socks and sandals, they just don't go together. This one was very debated. There was like a hundred comments and a debate about whether these two things go together. Some people say yes, some people say no. We'll settle this once and for all, okay? Um, Pineapples and pizza, okay? Do they go together? All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, um, let's take a vote, okay? All of the people who say pineapples and pizza go together, on the count of three, say amen. Ready? One, two, three. Amen! Okay, all the people who say that pineapples and pizza don't go together, on the count of three, say amen. One, y'all, y'all, y'all don't even, y'all don't even get a vote. You can't even follow instructions, right? (laughs) All right, okay, pineapples and pizza, one, two, three. Oh, I think pizza and pineapples has it. Some things they go together, some things they don't. How about this one? That's my favorite. Kanye West and Twitter. Um, (laughs) Some things are just bad ideas. They don't, they don't go together. Taylor Swift and boyfriends. Oh, things don't work out all the time. Um, Bananas and barbecue sauce. Okay, whoever said bananas and barbecue sauce, you're gross. Uh, It's just, it's, that's, that's nasty. Whoever thought, I like bananas and I like barbecue sauce, let's put these two things together. You need Jesus because that's a sin. Um, Actually, I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy. Thou shalt not mix bananas and barbecue sauce. It's in there. Read your Bible because you're disgusting. Um, So no bananas and barbecue sauce. And then... Cereal and water. Okay, let's just be honest. When you're in college, sometimes you do things you're not proud of. Uh, One of the many things is cereal and water. So, because there's just some things that don't mix, but what we're going to see today is that there's something else that doesn't mix, and that is religion and Christianity. Religion and Christianity, they just don't mix. And so if you have your Bibles, turn through to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18 as we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Mark, where we're spending the next two years walking verse by verse, line by line through Mark's gospel, where we're taking a look at the life of Jesus, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, how Jesus lived, so that way we can live our life for Jesus. And the the the, the big problem that we're going to see today is this mixture or people trying to mix 
Christianity and religion, and they don't go together. They're like bananas and barbecue sauce. Some things, they just don't go together. And today we're in Mark chapter 2, and this is actually week 3 of a series of five controversies that Jesus gets in with the religious leaders. That Jesus' life was mixed or marked by um, controversy, by conflict, by chaos, and by contention, because he's always having these constant run-ins with the religious leaders, because, well, they are opposed to Jesus, they resist Jesus, and that they try to work and fight against Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus' life, it is marked by controversy. The first of the controversies we saw was where Jesus forgives a man's sins. Jesus goes and he heals, he heals a man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then the religious people, they freak out and they say, well, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, exactly. Right? Highly controversial. Last week we saw another one where Jesus goes back to Levi's house. They throw a big party. Jesus hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. And the religious people say, why are you friends with sinners? So the first of the controversies was over forgiveness. The second was over friendship. And today the controversy, the fight, the big problem is over fasting. Okay, now let me say this. The problem here is really not about fasting. It goes a lot deeper than that. It's more than fasting. The fight is actually about religion. Fasting just happens to be the battleground, but the problem is mixing religion and Christianity because fasting is actually a good thing. Now, as Christians, well, it's a spiritual discipline in which we need to learn. It's where we voluntarily abstain from food so that way we can receive from the Lord. That's one of the reasons that we fast, that we can get alone with God, we can get away from all the distractions, and that He can fill us up and we can get close to Him and we can get, we can get near to Him. So fasting is actually a good thing. And every single year, in the month of January, as a church, we fast. We do a 21-day fast in January, and we have seen God do some amazing things through the season and the duration of our church fasting. We've seen God you know, restore marriages. We've seen people be healed. We've seen people's children come to know the Lord. We've seen financial situations begin to work themselves out. We've seen the church begin to grow. We've seen some amazing things happen when we humble ourselves and we seek the Lord through fasting. So fasting is actually a good thing. Jesus himself, he even fasts. We see it that before Jesus launches into his public life and ministry, he starts by fasting for 40 days. Later in the gospel, it'll say that when you fast, not if you fast, because there is expectation on Christians that fasting is something we do to be able to grow in our spiritual disciplines and our devotion to the Lord. So fasting it, it is a good thing. But what we're going to see today is that the fight is not really about fasting. The fight is actually about mixing religion and Christianity because they just don't go together. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 2, going to start in verse 18. And here's what Jesus says about trying to mix the two. Starting in 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting, right? There's our word. And people came and said to them, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. This section here, starting in verse 18, is actually a continuation of last week's message. 
that Jesus, he goes over to Levi's house, the biggest sinner in the city. He's a tax collector, the lowest of the low. Everybody hates him. Nobody wants to be around him. And then Jesus says, follow me, goes back to his house. There's a big party. Lots of sketchy people show up. There's music, there's fun, there's food. It's a party. Well, like every good party, eventually, eventually, well, the party must come to an end. And so the music is, you know, died down. The food has run out. People, they start to go home. Jesus, he walks outside. And then all of a sudden, there's the religious people. The religious people, they are right there and they're waiting for Jesus. And they come up to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, we have some questions for you. We have a problem with you. We don't understand why you do the things that you do. See, for them, they think Jesus just shows up out of nowhere. That he just comes into their town and he starts doing things very different. They say, Jesus, you don't follow the rules. You don't follow the regulations. You don't follow the rituals. You don't do things the way that we do them. That you come and you preach and you preach as one who has authority. That when you teach, people actually listen to you. Right? That's very different for them. And that you cast out demons and you heal and you perform miracles. So the way that you do things is different than the way that we do them. Now, obviously, people are really drawn to you because you have a large ministry that there's people from all over the region. They're, they're following after you. They're looking to you. They're learning from you. They're listening from you. And so, Jesus, we have some questions about you and your ministry because you don't seem to do things the way that we do them, that you don't belong here. You don't fit in here. You don't follow all of the rules. And so, for the Pharisees, they ask him, why don't you and your disciples fast. See, John, his disciples, they fast. What here is talking about John the Baptist. We met him a couple of weeks late earlier, where John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin, that he wears camel skin and, you know, eats bugs and honey. And the Bible still calls him the greatest man who ever lived. That's John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He is the, the forerunner, the promised prophet from the book of Malachi to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, John preaches, people repent of their sins, they get baptized, Jesus comes on the scene, and then John the Baptist, he is arrested and he's thrown into prison. Well, here we notice that John's disciples, they actually continued in his ministry. And so they're preaching and people are repenting and they're still being baptized. But it also says that John, his disciples, they were fasting. Now, most likely the fasting is due to that they're weeping and mourning the loss of their leader. So they, they fast. The Pharisees say, John, his disciples, they fast. And then our, our followers of the Pharisees, well, we fast. And when Pharisees fast, everyone knows it. Now, when a Pharisees fast, it is a very big deal. It is a show. It is a spectacle. It's very solemn. It's very serious. And when Pharisees fast, they want everybody to know it. So what they do is they, they put on old clothes that are worn and torn and tattered and have holes. They look very poor so they can look very pious. So they wear old clothes and they put you know, dirt on their face and they wear their hair long and they walk around and they say, I'm fasting. Everybody come see me. Everybody come look at me. And so when you would see a Pharisee and they would be fasting, you're like, oh, what a holy man. Look at him. He's fasting. And they would think, I'm so righteous. I'm so, I'm so loved by God. I'm so holy because I am fasting. Now, how often do you think that the Pharisees would fast? Well, they would actually fast twice a week. 
See, according to their traditions, if you're going to fast, you wanted to be a good, godly Jewish person, then you had to fast twice a week, every Monday and every Wednesday. That was their tradition. And you ask, well, where's that in the Bible? It's not in there. You're not going to find it anywhere in the Bible. So why did they fast twice a week? I don't know, maybe to cut down on grocery bills or just to make themselves look better. But there really is no biblical mandate for a person to fast twice a week. The only biblical mandate for fasting in the Old Testament was on the Day of Atonement. This is one day out of the year where God's people were to go to the temple, they were to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins, and then after they've made their sacrifice, they get to go home and they could eat. God said that you can fast one day out of the year whenever you're making your sacrifices. Other than that, you're free. The Pharisees come along and they say, God, you said one day... Right, that's not nearly enough. Right, we're going to go beyond what God says and then we're just going to tell you what to do. So instead of just fasting once, you need to fast twice. Not just once a year, 104 times a year. That's how you're going to fast. And the Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you don't follow the rules. And Jesus says, well, you don't follow the Bible. They're like, we made up these rules. And he's like, yeah, I wrote the book. And you don't seem to want to follow the book. They say, Jesus, you don't belong here. Jesus, you don't fit in. You're not as good as us. You're not as holy as us. You're not as righteous as us. You're not as godly as us. Now, if you think that you're more godly than God, you have the wrong God. If you can walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're not like me at all. Right? Something's wrong with you. Okay, Nothing's wrong with him. Something's wrong with you. If you think you're better than Jesus, you're wrong. I don't know any other nicer way to say that other than simply saying you're not because you're not better than Jesus. The Pharisees, they thought they were better than Jesus. And so Jesus is going to teach them um, and he's going to give them three illustrations to show them this point about mixing religion and Christianity. And he's going to tell a parable. Okay, three parables. Parables are short stories, word pictures to reveal the kingdom of God. He's trying to illustrate, to highlight the differences between religion and Christianity. And the first thing that Jesus says is this, that religion is about rules while Christianity is about relationship. Religion is about rules, but Christianity is about relationships. Starting in 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast? So that's what started the fight in the first place, right? That it's a question over fasting. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So think about it like a wedding. It's a celebration. It's a relationship. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then in that day, they will fast. One of my favorite things to do is to go to a wedding. And as a pastor, I I get to go to weddings. It's kind of one of the perks of my job. And I've been to all sorts of weddings, big weddings, small weddings. I've been to expensive weddings. I've been to justice and peace weddings. I've been to indoor weddings, outdoor weddings, all different sorts and types of weddings. And here's what I've seen. At every wedding I go to, it's the most exciting day for the couple, that it's a special day. It's a big day for that couple. Why? Because they're entering into a relationship. Jesus says that that life with Christ is like a wedding, that there is joy, there is celebration, there is happiness happiness, there is excitement, there is energy, there is, there is relationship. And Jesus says that I am the bridegroom 
and that I love and serve and care and give my life. And then the church becomes like the bride who, who loves and serves and cares and lays down her life for, for Jesus. And then the wedding ceremony is a symbol of the relationship that we have. And Jesus says that the Christian life is like a wedding, that it's filled with joy. And what do you do at weddings? You laugh, right? You have fun, you dance, right? You can sing, that there's friends, there's family. And the best part of a wedding has to be the food, amen? It's got to be the food. The husband and wife, they're great. But the food, that's really the reason why we came. And I love the food at a wedding. How many of you would go to a wedding and be like, no, I'm not going to eat? No, because then you would be crazy. When you go to a wedding, you know, okay, hurry up, kiss the girl, because we're going to eat cake. That's the, per- that's the point. That's, that's a lot of the reason why we RSVP early or late. We're like, what's on the menu? Right, I'll let you know if we're going to go. But it's really, it's, it's about the, the relationship, but the food, is what's, the food is what's amazing. And this is where the Pharisees' problem was, that they were fasting at a wedding. They were fasting when they were supposed to be feasting. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom, I am here and that we can be in relationship together, and that the Christian life is a joyful life. The Christian life is an exciting life. The Christian life is a happy life, that there's energy, there's excitement, there's passion, there's purpose, there is joy. And this is the reason that I get so excited when I preach on a Sunday morning. Some of you think that I get a little too excited when I, when I preach, right? Some of you are like, Byron, you need to calm down. I don't think that you can ever calm down when it comes to talking about Jesus. Because the same way that that a husband is to love his wife more and more every single day is the same way that we're to fall in love with Jesus the longer that we follow him. I do not believe that the passion you had when you first believed is ever supposed to leave. That we should have this excitement and this joy because that's what the Christian life is like. That's why when you come here on a Sunday morning that I get excited, that I raise my hands, I raise my voice, I yell, I clap, I run around like a crazy person because I'm trying to do anything that I can to move you, to motivate you, to understand what life in the kingdom actually looks like. That there is joy, and that's the reason why I lose my mind. When you sit here with your arms folded and you look at me like I'm the teacher from Charlie Brown, because it's okay for you to be excited. It's okay for you to laugh. It's okay for you to have fun. It's okay for you to show a little emotion, to have a little energy, to look alive because the Christian life is a joyful life. Today is a good day. Today that Jesus is risen, that the grave has been empty, that we have been saved, that hell has been defeated, and that we've been reconciled into relationship. Christianity is about this relationship. Religion, on the other hand, is about rules. Religion says, shh, this is church. Like, no talking in church. Like, this is serious business. This is God's house. And God, he's not any fun. Like, you can't have fun with God. He's serious. He'll smite you if he sees you smiling. No laughing, no grinning. Grinning is halfway to sinning. No grinning. Can't be having any fun. I see you laughing right over there. No laughing. And don't clap. Because then you might invite the demons in. Don't raise your hands. Okay, because then you might be charismatic. And we don't want to be like one of those people, do we? We're not that type of church. We're a serious church. This is business. Right? This is religion. And religion is all about the rules. Jesus comes along the other way. He says, no, it's about the relationship. 
That if you really knew me, if you really knew who I was, how I lived, if you really knew how much I loved you and what I went through so that I could be in relationship with you, if you really understood who I was, then you would have deep, true, meaningful joy because this is the moment you've been looking for. This is the moment you've been waiting for. This is the moment that you've been anticipating for. That true, deep, joyful, wonderful, that ultimate fulfillment is only solely found in me and you don't fast when you're at a feast and you don't weep when you're at a wedding and there is no rules when it's all about the relationship that's what jesus is trying to tell them but don't get it backwards see that's what religion does religion it gets it backwards see religion says oh it's all about the rules and if i keep the rules then i can have a relationship jesus says no that that we have a relationship, and then we keep the rules. In John 16, Jesus says, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. It starts with love. See, religion, it gets it backwards, but some people, in an attempt to avoid becoming religious, they fall into a trap known as antinomianism. Okay? They will say, oh, it's all about the relationship. Therefore, there is no rules, and I can do whatever I want. That's not true. Okay, in an attempt to avoid becoming religious, some people, they fall into antinomianism, okay, which is a big fancy word that says, basically, I can do what I want whenever I want, and it doesn't really matter because it's my life, and in the end, love wins and we all go to heaven. That I can live like hell and I can still go to heaven. That I can sin as much as I want because, well, Jesus died on the cross. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm okay. I can make it in the end. And so I'm just going to live my life. No worry about the word of God or being obedient or doing anything that's actually supposed to be done. Well, I just get to do whatever I want. And some people, in an attempt to avoid becoming religious, you actually just become rebellious. That's what some of you are. You're like, no, I don't want to be religious and do all those things. And so instead you become rebellious. And to the Lord, there really is no difference. That there's no difference between religion and rebellion because both of them he is opposed to. And so some people say, I have relationship. And but they don't keep any of the rules. Listen, let me give you an illustration to better understand this. Okay, me and my wife, okay, we're married. Um, we've been married now. Um, August 1st will be our 10-year wedding anniversary. Okay, over 10 years, there's some things that I've learned I need to do <laughs> to be able to continue to allow our relationship to continue to grow. And over the years, some of those things have begun to change. But right now, here's some things that I do in our relationship. Okay, we, we just say, um, Byron, will you take out the trash, walk the dog? When you get home from work, make sure you don't bring any work home. 5.30, close the laptop, eat dinner with us as a family, give Esther a bath, tuck her in bed. Those are just some of the daily rules that I, I need. Now, I don't keep those rules so that God will love me or so that Ashley will love me. Wait, I do them because I love her. And that's what keeps the relationship to continue to grow. And that's the same way that God is with us, that God has given us relationship and rules are some of the ways in which that relationship is continuing to grow. But don't get it backwards. That's what religion does. Religion says, if I obey, then God will love me. That if I keep the rules, then I will be accepted. If I fast, then I will be holy. If I fast twice a week, then God will love me twice as much. If I obey, then I will be loved. See, in Christianity, it says we obey because in Christ, we're already loved. Do you see the difference? Religion and Christianity, they're backwards. They don't mix. 
Now, is Jesus here saying that there will never be a time in which it is his disciples are going to need to fast? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is this just his prohibition on fasting altogether? That's actually not what he's saying. He does say that there is a time that's coming that it will be appropriate for his followers to fast. And here's how he says it in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then in that day, they will fast. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. When you're reading through this, you need to understand that the cross is not a shock to Jesus. That three years later, when they arrest him, he's not like, what? I didn't know that this was going to happen. Hey, what's going on, guys? You're nailing me to a cross? How did I get here? Where did I go wrong? No, Jesus is not shocked by the cross. He is not surprised because he knows from the very beginning that he predicts his own death. And Jesus is in constant conflict and controversy with these religious leaders because he knows from the very beginning how this is going to end and how important it is to highlight the differences between religion and Christianity. Jesus says to the religious leaders that you trust in your works when it's about my works that you trust in your good deeds when it's about what I can do. You trust in your perfection. It's about my perfection. You trust in your righteousness. It's about my righteousness. You hope in your ability when it's really about my authority. And Jesus shows the difference between religion and Christianity from the very beginning. And he says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to trade places with you. Live the life you never could live. Die the death that you deserve. And on the cross, I will give you my sinlessness. Take upon myself your sinfulness. I will give you my righteousness, take upon myself your unrighteousness, and I will do what you could never do, that you cannot earn this, you don't deserve this, but by grace, I will give this to you freely. And religion and Christianity are diametrically opposed. Because Jesus gives it to us freely, religion says you must earn this. And this is why Jesus fights with the religious leaders from the very beginning. And so understand the problem is not about fasting. The problem is about trying to mix religion and Christianity because they just don't go together. Here Jesus predicts his death for the very first time. He says, I am the bridegroom. Now this is a... This is a prophecy made in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Isaiah that God would be like a husband over his people and that the people would be like the bride and that one day the husband is going to come. And Jesus says, yeah, I remember when you were reading about Isaiah and Ezekiel, that's me. Here I am that he is the bridegroom and he says that one day I'm going to be gone, Okay, that I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die and then I will be buried. Three days later, I'm going to resurrect, conquering Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave. I'll ascend to the right hand of the Father, and then I will send the promise of the Holy Spirit to be with my people. And then in that day, that's the proper moment for my people for them to be fasting. So there is a time and season in which fasting is appropriate. And Jesus says that as Christians, what one of these verses shows us is the way that we fast is different. On this side of the cross... Our fasting is different. See, I meet people and they they think that fasting and praying and interceding is almost like begging. They say, when they pray, they say, God, please, won't you do this? God, please, won't you do that? God, don't you see me down here? I'm, I'm fasting. I'm suffering. I'm starving. God, I am just, you know, hurting myself so you can love me more. Won't you please do something? And they see fasting almost in the point of begging. Now, in Christ, there is no begging. 
That we don't have to beg because, well, God, He just blesses us. That He loves us, He cares for us, that He sees us in our need, and He responds to that. There is no begging when we have the blessing. And fasting is actually a blessing. That we don't fast just to get from God. No, we, we fast to get with God. So there are times and seasons in which fasting, it really is appropriate. So let's say that you need wisdom or guidance and you're surrounded by distractions and you have to make a big decision. That would be a great time for people to fast. Because what fasting does is it says no to the flesh and it says yes to the Lord. That you begin to starve the flesh so that way you can feed the Spirit. And so, yeah, that's a great time for to begin to fast. Others who feel far from God, fasting would be a great way for you to begin to draw closer to Him. For those who are you know, feeling empty and, and weak and, and you need strength, fasting is a great way to be able to see that God alone is the source of strength that can meet you in your needs. And so when you're weak, you can fast and then God, He will fill you because that's what God does. That God fills us, that God satisfies us. And so we need to understand that fasting is not a burden. Fasting is not a begging. Fasting is actually a blessing. And so there are times and seasons where fasting would actually be a good thing. Right now, as we're moving into our new building and we're praying and we're, you know, we're planning and we're meeting with landlords and lawyers and we're trying to work out the details on the lease, right now would be a great time for us to begin to pray and to fast as a church because we fast so that way we can get to God to see what God is going to do through us. Fasting is actually a really good thing. But here's what religion does. Religion has a knack to be able to take a good thing and make it a bad thing. Because religion, it gets it backwards. Religion will say, it's about the rules. Jesus says, no, it's about the relationship. Well, that leads to point number two, where Jesus says that religion is about regulations. Christianity is about regeneration. Here's how it starts in 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worse a tear is made. The illustration that he is giving here is of a person who has torn, worn, and tattered clothes. It's probably a reference to the clothes that the Pharisees are wearing when they're fasting. He's saying, look at your clothes. Right? They're all torn and worn, and they're, you know, they're, they're frayed, and they have large holes over it. And you walk around like you're important and pious. And you look like you're poor because you're putting on all these old clothes just so that people can come and notice you. So let's talk about your clothes, right? Your clothes have holes in it. It's like an old garment. What religion is, is an old garment. And then it goes to the new garment, cuts up a piece of a brand new cloth, say like a t-shirt in the closet that you've never worn before. Religion goes, grabs that new shirt, and then uses it to try to cover up what is old. That's all that religion does. All that religion can do is try to cover up what's old. And they try to do it through good works, good deeds, working harder, trying harder, being better, doing better. And here's what Jesus says. I didn't come to make you better. I came to make you new. That religion is all about trying to be better, but Christianity is all about being new. Jesus says, I didn't come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. It's not about being better. It's about being made new. Religion is all about regulations. Religion says, here's the list. 
If you want to be saved, here's the things that you need to do. We made a list. We checked it twice. There's an Excel spreadsheet. There's a database online. You can go and you can find the list and you can download it. And then you might possibly be saved. If you want to be saved, here's all the regulations. You have to travel to this holy place. You have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. You have to pray in this certain direction. You have to pray this many times a day. You need to fast. You need to follow these holy leaders that you need to give this much money tied this many times and you want to be good. So you have to have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. So you need to start doing some good deeds. You need to start walking granny across the street, quit smoking. You need to recycle. You need to reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt. And maybe at the end of your life, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and if your old clothes don't have enough holes in it, then maybe possibly you might be able to be saved. And then Jesus says, all your regulations are just man's efforts to be able to try to cover up for your insight insecurities, your inadequacies, your faults, your flaws, your failures, your sin. Religion is just an attempt to try to cover up. Jesus comes because he wants to create something new. Religion covers up the old, but Jesus comes to make you new. Religion is about regulations. Christianity is about regeneration. And this is so incredibly important. What Jesus is talking about here is the doctrine of regeneration. And this is important for many of you because I don't know if you truly grasp what Jesus does when you become a Christian. See, when you become a Christian, you begin to experience regeneration. That your old life is gone and then Jesus gives you a new one. But many of you, you come to church and you say, okay, here's my life. Here's my problems. Here's my situation. Here I am. Fix me. Before Jesus wants to fix you, he wants to forgive you. And he doesn't necessarily just want to fix you. He wants to make you new. And you say, Jesus, here's, here's all my problems. Here's the mess that I've been. Here's all the things that I've done. Won't you do it? And you're still trying to just cover up your old life, your old sin, your old shame. And you want to just be better. But Jesus wants to make you new. And so I want to show you 11 things that happen when a person becomes a Christian and they experience regeneration because Jesus makes you new. The first thing is this, that you get a new birth. The psalmist say that you're born in sin, that we're totally depraved, bent in towards ourself and our sin. That is our nature. You are born in sin. Then you meet Jesus and you are born again that you can be born again. Your old nature of sin and shame and guilt and condemnation has been removed. You've been given a new nature of love and holiness and godliness. And so, yeah, you might have been born in sin, but the good news is, is you can be born again. The second is that you get a new Lord. Whatever you're hoping in, trusting in, believing in before Jesus, that is your Lord. That it ruled you, it owned you, it mastered you, it dominated you. And people have different lords. Some people, their lord is their jobs, their money, their family. Some people, it's drugs or alcohol. Some it's food, some it's sex, some it's relationships, hobbies, interests. Whatever it is that you're looking for to give you your identity and to give you your hope and life, that is your old lord. And then you meet Jesus and he becomes your new lord. That he takes the rightful place on the throne of your heart. Your old lords have been destroyed. Jesus takes his rightful place where he loves, he serves, he cares, and he is always there for you. And only Jesus saves. Only Jesus satisfies. Because only Jesus is Lord. You also get a new heart. The heart is the seat to some, the center, the source of the human experience. That it is the root of who you are, how you see the world, it is your identity. 
And so you get a new heart. See, before Jesus, your heart is hard. Your heart is hurt. Your heart was broken. And then you meet Jesus and he gives you a new heart. Some people, they say, oh, you need to follow your heart. Right? Don't follow your heart. Give your heart to Jesus. He'll give you a new one. And then you follow him. You get a new heart. See, your new heart's not hard. It's actually soft. It's tender towards the things of the Lord. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that enables you to begin to change. Not from the outside in, but rather from the inside out. Because it all starts with the heart. See, religion says change from the outside in. Christianity says, no, it starts with the heart from the inside out. Because Jesus gives you a new heart. Well, also, you become a new creation. People flat out change. Some people say, oh, they'll never change. Well, you need to give Jesus a shot because Jesus changes people. People flat out change. I have seen it. I've seen people walk in the doors one way, meet Jesus, get saved, be baptized, join a group, start giving, start serving. A month, two months, three months later, they're like a totally different person. Their personalities have changed. Their, you know, their, their relationships have changed. Their marriage has changed. Like the way that they raise their kids, the way that they spend their money, the way they work the job. I mean, everything, it really does change. And you see them and you're like, that's a totally different person. Yeah, because they've been made a new creation. That Jesus makes us new creations. Well, also you get a new mind. Now, this doesn't mean that you automatically become smarter than everybody else. Okay, I meet some Christians that think they're smarter than everybody else. Like, I'm smarter than you. No, you're not. Okay, and, and I've met some pretty dumb Christians too, just saying. Um, just because you have a new mind, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to like memorize systematic theologies, read 100 books in 10 minutes, pray and pass a test, and you know, come up with new inventions. That's not what it means by new mind. What it means is the way that you think, the way that you perceive, the way that you see the world. Your worldview, it all begins to change. And so when you have to come and you make a decision, it's no longer based on your preference or your own proclivities, but now it's led of the Spirit because you have the mind of Christ. And so you go to the Word of God and you look for the wisdom of God and you seek counsel from the people of God. And you have this new mind. Well, also you get a new love. See, in our day and age, everything is almost entirely self-love. Okay, love me. Do something for me. Be there for me. I'm worthy of love. I'm deserving of love. I need happiness. I need, I need love. I don't feel like anybody loves me. Right? Isn't that kind of what it looks like? Now we're all talking about self-love and our love is based upon our affections, our feelings, or how other people can make us feel. And so we fall in love and we fall out of love because it's all predicated upon self-love. But then you meet Jesus and you get this new love. That it's no longer a love of self, it's a love of God, it's a love of others. That it's no longer self-serving, it becomes self-sacrificing because you start to love like Jesus. That Jesus loves me, so I'm going to love them. It's all this, this new love. You also get new desires. How many of you are new Christians? And you've seen this. You're like, all of a sudden, I want to go to church. Weird. Right? I never wanted to go to church before. And now if I miss a Sunday, I'm like, whew. Right? I, I, you're going to go two services next week because now you have these, this new, these, these new desires. You're like, I want to stay up till midnight talking about Jesus to people. That's amazing. I want to go to community group. That's great. I want to serve. I want to start giving. I, I want to begin to you know, grow in my faith. Wow, that's, that's, that's different. That's strange. That's weird. It's because, well, now you have these, these new desires. How many of you are new Christians and you're starting to witness this? You've experienced it. You've got these new desires happening because that's a sign of regeneration. You also get a new community. Whenever God saves you, He doesn't leave you as an orphan. No, He brings you into a family. That God is our Father, Jesus is our big brother, and the church becomes brothers and sisters. 
Sometimes the brothers and sisters we have in a church are closer than the brothers and sisters we have growing up. Right? Because they're there for us and they care for us and they, they bless us and encourage us and speak life into us. That's all a new community. That's all a new family. And that's what you get when you become a Christian. You also get a new power. Okay? Most of your life is spent trying to get by on willpower. Work harder. Try harder. Do better. Be better. Lift with your back, not with your legs. That was a joke. You try to get by on willpower. I can do it. And then you're like, you can't do it. See, everything tries to tell you, you need to have willpower. No, you need to have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's God's power. When you become a Christian, the third member of the Trinity takes up residence in the life of the believer, that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and that He gives you new gifts, new abilities, new talents, new power, so that way you can overcome sin. Listen, sin is powerful, but the only thing more powerful than sin is the Holy Spirit within you. You have a new power to live in victory over sin. You have a new power to be able to change in your life that when you become a Christian a sign of regeneration is this new power which leads to a new freedom that you can say no to sin you can say yes to Jesus that you are not a victim that you are not a slave that you are not mastered or manipulated or dominated by your old life you have a new freedom you are no longer the worst day of your life you are not the biggest decision the mistake that you have ever made in your life because of jesus you have been set free and many of you you understand forgiveness but you don't understand freedom that you've given your life to jesus but you're still held in bondage to your past jesus also sets you free you can get up and you can walk out and you can live a totally different brand new life and that culminates into the last point that you get a new life that you don't have to be the way that you used to be because you get a new life You don't have to do the things that you used to do because you get a new life. You don't have to live the way that you used to live because of Jesus. You get a brand new life. And religion is not, religion wants to make people better, but Jesus wants to make you new. Now, religion says that it's about good people, bad people becoming good. Jesus says it's about dead people coming alive. See, religion is all about just you cutting up new clothes to put them over old holes. Jesus comes not just to cover up, but to create. See, religion is like putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. It doesn't matter. It makes things worse. Jesus comes and says, you need to be healed. You need to be healthy. You need to be whole. You need to be made new. Religion is regulations. Jesus is regeneration. Which leads us to the last. Where Jesus says, Religion is about rituals, but Christianity is about revival. Here's how he says it in 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now this parable is probably lost on many of us. Okay, because, well, if we want wine, well, what do we do? We just go down to HEB and pick us up a nice little bottle. And if you're feeling classy, you can get it in a box. Okay, that's what a lot of us do. We're like, oh, I need some wine. Let's go and get, go pick it up. But in that day, they didn't have H-E-B or Kroger. So if you wanted wine, you would actually have to make it yourself. And it was quite a process to be able to ferment or to make your own wine. What you would do is you'd take the grapes and you would crush them and grind them. And then they would make this juice. And then the juice, it, it would begin to ferment. 
couple of days in the Palestinian sun, the fermentation would take place, so that you pour it into large containers or jars lined with animal skins. So this is like goat skins or sheep skins, and you pour it into the large jar. As it fills up, you sew the skins shut. So that way light and oxygen don't have any access into that, that wine. Well, you set it aside for a couple of months. The fermentation process begins. And what happens is that it actually begins to expand. That the wine, it, it actually kind of grows through that process. And it stretches out the skin to where almost they get to the place to where they're going to rupture. But they're able to sustain all the volume in there. And then that's when the fermentation, everything continues to work. So you set it aside for a couple of months, and then all of a sudden, your wine's ready, right? Yay. And then you start kind of serving the wine, and things are fine. But once it gets empty, you set the old skins off to the side, and then they become brittle. They become hard. They, they take their shape. They take their form, and they're, they're not able to be able to really be good for anything. So if you were to start the process of new wine all over again, well, if you were to pour that into those old skins, what would happen is there's no room for fermentation. That as the wine begins to expand, eventually both the old wineskin and the new wine are ruined because the wineskins rupture. Because there's no room for it to grow. And what Jesus is saying here is that new wine always grows. What he's talking about is the difference between rituals and revival. See, for the Pharisees, all they knew was rituals. It was their old wineskin. This is the way that it's been done. This is the way that it's always been done. This is how we do it. This is the way we've always done it. See, religion is about rituals. And that's the same for many of us. This is the way that I was raised. This is what my grandparents taught me. This is the domination I come from. This is the church that I was brought up in. This is just the way that my last church did it. This is the way that it's supposed to be. This is the way everything needs to be. And that's all about religion because it's all about the rituals. See, the Pharisees, they, they thought, well, this is just the way it's always been. For the last 1,000 years, we get up, we go to synagogue, we pray, we worship, we tithe, we read the Torah, we fast. That's the way that it's been. Now, my question is, are there anything wrong with any of those things? No, those are all good things. That we should still do those. We should pray, we should go to church, we should fast, we should tithe, we should read the Bible and live our lives accordingly. Those are all good things. The problem is when what you do becomes more important than why you do it. See, for the Pharisees, what they did was more important than why they did it. They valued spiritual disciplines over their devotion to the Lord. That what they did became more important than why they did it, and that is by definition religion. Listen, nothing will kill a church faster than religion. Nothing will kill the momentum of our church fa faster than religion. I have seen it. I've seen religion destroy churches. Every church is 10 years away from dying and their doors being closed due to religion. That every church, every church is prone and acceptable, susceptible to be able to fall into religion. I have, I've seen it. Okay, the greatest threat to a church is not outside. The greatest threat to a church is inside. The greatest threat to a church is religion. I've seen churches get so obsessed with worship that they actually begin to worship worship. Instead of the God of worship, they say, these are the instruments, these are the songs, this is the way that it needs to be, this is what worship is supposed to be, to where they actually end up worshiping worship. I've seen pastors do it to the Bible, where they say, oh, you have to preach this translation, it's got to be this way, you need three-point messages, this is the way that it's got to be, this is the way I was taught in seminary, this is the only way in which you can preach the Bible. 
I've seen it in kids' ministry. If you can destroy kids' ministry, there's a special place in hell for you. I mean, if religion can destroy kids' ministry, I mean, that's, that's, that's bad. Kids' ministry is supposed to be the fun place, right? It, it, well, all the church is fun, but this is safe. It's happy. That it's vital. It's important. And religion can ruin it. They'll say, no, no, all the, all the kids, they need to be in the big room. No, no, all the kids, they need to be in the little room. No, no, they need to go to Sunday school. They have to go to VBS. They have to go to Awanas. They got to sing this little light of mine. They got to they join in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. This is the way that it's supposed to be. And religion ruins kids' ministry. No wonder kids grow up and don't want to go back to church because religion ruins it. And nothing will kill a church faster than religion. And before you think that it's only in your grandparents' church, it's not. It's in all churches. Okay, because I've even seen modern pastors become very dogmatic about the way that church is supposed to be. They say, oh, you want your church to grow? Okay, well, then you have to, you have to get a fog machine and lasers. Okay, because if you don't have a fog machine, the Holy Spirit can't show up. Right? Oh, if you don't play Bethel songs, nobody's going to get the goosebumps. Okay, they've got to have the goosebumps so they're not going to come back. Oh, you, you wanna, you know, nobody wants to listen to hour-long sermons, expositional preaching through books of the Bible. That's boring. That's old. Right? It needs to be a TED Talk. It needs to be short so you can keep their attention because people are stupid. They can't pay attention for a long enough period of time. Tell them what, you, tell them what they want to hear. People don't want doctrine or theology. They want to hear truth. They want to hear something that makes them feel good. Oh, don't open altars. No, don't do that. Text this number in if you would like to join the church. We have technology now. We can do all these things. That's the only way the church is to grow. That you need to do an egg drop for Easter, send you know, 30,000 mailers for every single sermon series that you do, or else nobody's going to show up. That's not true. But pastors, you know, we even get to the point to where we become very dogmatic about the way that we do things. Anytime that what you do becomes more important than why you do it, you're no different than the Pharisees and you value ritual over revival. See, Jesus, he is about revival. That Jesus is doing something new. He's new wine for new wineskins. That Jesus comes and he wants to do something totally different than anyone has ever seen before. And the religious people say, you don't follow our rituals. You don't follow our regulations. And they, they begin to oppose Jesus. Jesus comes preaching. Massive crowds begin to follow him and they kill him. Peter stands up and he preaches at Pentecost. The next chapter over... They throw him in prison because religion always tries to stop what Jesus is trying to do. Paul comes along, he begins to plant churches. Everywhere he goes, religious leaders, they oppose him. Well, the church, it continues to grow up until 300 when Constantine takes over the Roman church and that he formalizes it, he ritualizes it, he neuters the church, and eventually it just sort of stops growing up until the 1500s when there's a renegade monk named Martin Luther who stands up to the Catholic church and he nails his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door and says, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And the Protestant Reformation was born and churches begin to move all across across the region. People start printing Bibles, reading their Bibles, repenting of their sin, and the Protestant Reformation changes the world until it comes to America with two men named Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and they begin to preach repentance, and the massive revival breaks out across the entire nation, and there's a great awakening which leads to the Azusa Street Revival in the 1900s, where it's like a second Pentecost, and it leads to the world's largest 
greatest missionary movement that's ever been in history to where today there are 3.5 billion people on this planet worshiping Jesus Christ as their risen Lord, Savior, God, and King. Because Jesus is always doing something new. That the kingdom of God, it grows. That the gospel, it goes forth. And the gospel is spreading. And the kingdom is spreading. And Jesus is working. And the church, it's growing. And I believe this is the same thing that Jesus wants to do in our church. That Redemption Church is going to grow. That more people are going to get saved. More people are going to be baptized. More people are going to repent of sin. More people are going to go through growth class. Become members. Join a group. Get on a serve team. Start giving. Start tithing. Because there's more buildings to buy. There's more people to reach. There's more souls to be saved. There's more... There's more ties to be given. There's more missionaries to send. There's always more for us to do because the kingdom of God, it grows. That it's new wine for new wineskins. And new wine, it always grows. Jesus is about revival. And we will not, cannot, won't let anything stop us or stand in our way. Especially man-made religion, rules, rituals, and regulations when Jesus is about revival and doing something new. And I believe that Jesus wants to do that in you. See, revival, it starts with us. And Jesus, he wants to, he wants to make you new. That your old life will be gone. And that you can have a new life with him. That your past will be forgiven. And that your, your slate will be wiped clean. And that through Jesus, you have a great, grand, glorious, wonderful future waiting for you. And this is what Jesus wants to do. Because it starts with you. He's doing something new. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond today. So I'm excited. I hope that you are. I'm jacked. I hope you are. So we're going to respond today. And we're going to respond by doing so in a couple of ways. We're going to worship. Because what do you do at weddings? You sing, right? There's joy. There's celebration. So we're going to worship. And we are going to sing because today is a good day. That Jesus is alive and we have relationship with him. And then we're going to take Holy Communion. Where the body and the blood of Christ was broken and shed. So that way we can be forgiven of our sins. And that shows us that we have new life. That we have been made new with him. So we're going to partake in Holy Communion. And then also we're going to give up our tithes and offerings. Through our giving, the kingdom, it grows. Okay, God, God, God brings us into this with great generosity. And so one of the best ways we can become more like Jesus is through our giving. Because the kingdom of God grows. One of the ways is through your generosity. As we move into a new building to reach new people in this new season, it's going to take all of us working, giving together to see the gospel grow. And so we're going to worship. We're going to take communion. We're going to give. And others of you, you need to give your life to Jesus today. That some of you, you were raised very religious and you think that your good works, your good deeds, your good efforts, that you can live a good moral life and in the end, you will be saved. You're trusting in your works when it's about Jesus' work. You're trusting in your perfection when it's about Jesus' perfection. So repent of your religion and become a Christian. Others of you, you are, you are not religious, but you are rebellious that you have turned your back from Jesus, that you have run away from God as far as you can, as fast as you can. And you would come and you say, well, I, I like Jesus, but I don't like religion. Can I have Jesus without religion? The good news is you can't have it any other way because religion and Christianity just don't mix. Religion is about the rules. Jesus is about relationship. Religion is about regulations. Jesus is about regeneration. Religion is about rituals. Jesus is about revival. And today I believe that Jesus wants to do something new. 
Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.